0: I cannot wait to see you. Yana Nino Tapias planned to spend the summer before her first year at Stanford Medical School doing contact tracing or working retail. But when her job search hit a dead end, she went back to seasonal fruit picking, work she's been doing since she was 14. At the end of one long day, she tweeted about farm workers like her being paid $7 for two gallons of blueberries. She then asked, how much do you pay for your blueberries? I had to talk to her, I did, and learned so much about her path to medicine as a first gen college student, indigenous rights, farm workers rights, and what consumers need to know about the people who make their food possible. Jenna, where are you right now?
1: I'm at Stanford, California, or Palo Alto, California. So you're back no. at school? I'm back at school now, yeah.
0: I always remember those summers uh, during college going home, and it's it's so strange because you have all this independence when you're at school, and then you come home and your parents treat you like you were still in high school.
1: right. Right. And every time I go home, it's just there's just a large expectation, not necessarily for my mom. I think it's just like my own expectation that I should be like helping my mom and like doing some chores and like lightening her load that at school. It's like you're right, like complete freedom. And like I do whatever I want whenever I want.
0: Do you perceive your mom to have a heavy load?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think. You know, she's our only parent. And um, I think that, you know, we go to work and she has to come home and make them, um, some meals for everyone. And there's five of us. And she's kind of like a clean freak, like neat freak. Um, and so she loves the house being clean. So I help her out with all those things whenever I can.
0: It's a lot. Yeah. You're born, you're born in Eastern Oregon. You grew up in Eastern Washington State. Tell me about where you grew up.
1: So Eastern. Washington is very different from Seattle. I think that's one, like, common misconception that I get is that they think it's like just like Seattle and like super rainy and it's actually not. So Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon are both deserts and the rain shadow of a mountain range out there. So we get like very little rain. It's very conservative. There's very little diversity out there. I think the main communities of color that live out there are my own farm worker communities and the Native American communities. I think it was a great place to grow up. I think you grow up because it is so rural. There's so much nature around. There's so much like the outdoor activities to do. So I grew up around that a lot and I really enjoyed it around a lot of fields. So I grew up working in the fields. I love Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington. And I would love to go back someday.
0: Is that the plan to go back? Yeah, Absolutely. How old were you when you started working in the fields?
1: I was 14 years old. What was your first day of work like? I think I was super excited for my first day of work. It was like 10 years ago. I think I was super excited because I would get to contribute Uh, to my household I think the the thought process for me was like okay I can like use this money to give it to my mom to make her life easier and then she would let me keep some of it so that I could like spend it on whatever I wanted and I chose to like take my siblings and I on like a shopping spree for for school so we went to buy our school supplies and we were all super excited like we bought new backpacks and like brand name markers and stuff like that I have three younger siblings so they were all like little and they were excited because we had never done that like I think all growing up, it was like getting the bare minimum that we needed for school. And now it's finally like being, I was able to get them whatever they wanted.
0: Is there a story from childhood that captures who you were as a kid?
1: I think one story that we were recently remembering, like me my mom and my sister was, so our school used to do this activity called Battle of the Books, where there's like a selection of like eight books that kids read. It's kind of like a quiz bowl style where you just like recall parts of the book. And I had always loved reading. And so we were remembering that like I read all the books and like my sister was on my team, even though she was two years younger than me in the elementary school. And she was like, yeah, you just carried the team and you like just remembered everything. And I think that that was super emblematic of just who I was of like my love for reading, my overcompetitive nature, (laughs) just like a, a real enjoyment for school and like what the promise was my mom always wanted to go to school, didn't get the chance to. And so she was always telling me and my siblings like, oh, you go to school, like you do well in school. It's going to take you to a lot of places. And so I guess those attitudes just carried me through life. When she
0: was putting that emphasis on education, where was the emphasis placed?
1: I think the emphasis was really on like a love for learning. I don't like, uh, when I got into Stanford, she didn't really know what Stanford was. Like she didn't understand really why I had to go so far away. And so I think for her, it was really just like cultivating a love for learning and like a a love for like being able to build a career for myself, not having to depend on anyone else, like really being my own person rather than you're going to go to Harvard or you're going to go to Stanford um, or, or anything like that.
0: So if it wasn't her that put that idea into your head, how did you come to understand that there was something significant about going to an institution like Stanford?
1: Hmm. I think those sentiments started forming in high school when I moved a lot. So I moved during my sophomore year of high school into a new high school. And that was a town over, or it was like half an hour away from where we lived. And this new high school was predominantly white, Eastern Washington also has the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and the Hanford uh, Nuclear Nuclear Power Plant. Sorry, I can't say that right. Um, and that county actually has some of the highest rates of PhDs per capita in the nation. And so I started realizing like in this highly educated community that these names had like a lot of power and prestige behind them. And I, I started becoming familiar with them. So what is like a Harvard, Yale, Princeton mean, like versus like our state schools, which are amazing. And I, I appreciated them, but that's kind of where those sentiments started coming in. And then my junior year, I got this flyer in the mail for a program called QuestBridge. And it partners with a lot of like elite colleges and universities across the nation. And they were like, we have a like conference for juniors. You're invited to come, but you have to like fund yourself. And so I talked to my principal and he was like so excited because he was Mr. Bean and he was like the first person that ever told me like you need to go and like and I was like I can't afford it I don't know how to get there. At that point my parents had recently separated and my mom didn't know how to drive. So we were like I don't know how I'm going to get there and so he helped me out by fundraising like within the teachers and gave me like money to come to Stanford to learn about So I'm the first one in my family to apply to college, to apply to graduate school, to get through college, all those things. And when I came to this conference, they kind of explained like, oh, you have to take your SATs your junior year and then apply fall. This is something that I would have had no idea about if if I hadn't attended that college had it not been for Mr. Bean encouraging me to go. I think I've just been super blessed um, with these people along my journey that just like believed in me without any limitations. Just really put all of their time and investment in me. And I'm super grateful for that.
0: You have an experience that is going to be so familiar to so many of our listeners, which is that you as the oldest fluent English speaker in your family would go with your mom to medical appointments. You'd be the translator for her. You'd be the translator for some of her friends, sometimes a medical caregiver. How did that shape your thinking about what you
1: wanted to do? I really appreciate those experiences. I think that they were so formative and like my idea of like what a good healthcare setting looks like. There were multiple times when I would go with my mom to these interpreter or, and, and be in these interpreter interactions and like really see the doctors be dismissive of my mom, be dismissive of like her pain or like the things that she was going through or like my youngest brother was also very sick and be dismissive of like her concerns for him and I think that that frustrated me one very like visceral example for me was when I accompanied one of my mom's friend's daughters to her her birth like she was giving birth and I went with her and like the nurse like explained something to her and she just like nodded and then she turned to me and she's like what did she say like she had understood none of that this is like she's giving birth she's stressed out and she had no idea what was going on and I think that that was just so frustrating for me so After that, I kind of turned that frustration into a hope of what a a good healthcare provider could look like in Eastern Washington, where a lot of patients don't speak English, but where a lot of providers are also not familiar with like cultural things that come with giving birth or with taking care of your children. And so I I really dreamed that I could go back there and be that provider and be that provider that parents feel comfortable disclosing not only like all the medicines that they've given them, but also all the the traditional medicines that they've used on the kids. I think once I got into medical school, I was wondering, you know, why can't my community have top trained doctors? And so that's really my hope is that I'll be able to go back and serve them with all of this knowledge and all of these resources that I've gained at Stanford and really make that accessible to my community.
0: What did you observe in those interactions about the way that farm work affects a person's health?
1: Mm -hmm. (sighs) I think starting off with like my own personal experience, I think the first thing that was just very difficult for me to start to come to terms with was the availability of bathrooms in the field. So there's no plumbing out there. So they bring out porta potties, and your drinking water comes from like a cooler that they have to move closer to you every time you move like lines or move like blocks of far like farmland. They have to move the bathrooms and water closer to you because we're working at a per piece rate, so we're paid per unit of blueberry gallons that we pick, and every like moment that you spend out there is used, like, towards your salary. And so you, like, leaving to the bathroom isn't really an option because you spend, like, what, ten mi- five minutes walking out, a couple minutes in the bathroom, and then five minutes walking back. And it's just, like, not... Nah feasible. When you're seasonal migrant farm workers and you have to make that income last for the rest of the year. And so a lot of people would like hold their pee in or like not use the restroom or like not drink water because they don't want to leave to go to the restroom. Like I would hear people getting kidney stones like all the time, Um, like menstruating while you're in the fields is so difficult because you're having to change in a porta potty and it's super unhygienic like it isn't like I hated going in the porta potties there would be flies everywhere it's just not like an enjoyable experience and so I think that was the first place where I noticed that people are having issues with their health and then secondly joint pain is a huge problem when we're out there there's back pain like knee pain elbow pain back pain all sorts of pain that you just kind of have to learn to deal with kind of just occupational hazard and having to learn to live with daily pain was also something that just struck me when thinking about the health issues that migrant farm workers communities deal with. I think that, to put it most bluntly, that our lives are disposable and not worth it. So I think most, like a couple of weeks ago at the end of July, some farm workers were accidentally sprayed with pesticides back home. And that was so frustrating for me to see when you're breathing in pesticides, obviously that's gonna impact your lungs. And if you have inflamed lungs, sick lungs, the virus can get to you and have greater impacts. That has just shown me that even though we're seen as essential, Mm -hmm. our lives are probably not worth protecting. And that is so devastating for me to hear because that's my family, that's my community. Those are people that I've known, like, my whole life.
0: Is there something that's getting in the way of your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving your goals? I have found in my own life that talking with someone can make a big difference. But sometimes the logistics, finding the right person, the time to connect, makes things complicated. BetterHelp Online Counseling connects you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from depression to relationships to self-esteem. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Best of all, it's an affordable option. Latina to Latina listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code Latina. So why not join 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health? Go to betterhelp.com Latina. That's hel slash Latina. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes, from newborn to size 8, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the elephant and Freddy the duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club.
1: Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events.
0: And when you talk about the social part of college, how did you find your people?
1: It was hard. Um, I... (sighs) That was a really difficult part. I think I coming into Stanford, I was part of the Leland Scholars Program. That was a program for first gen students. So I found some of my closest friends there. And then being at the community centers. So I spent a lot of time at the El Centro Chicano Latino, but also, so my family is Mixeco from Oaxaca, so also a lot of time at the Native American Cultural Center, engaging with Indigenous people, engaging in Indigenous advocacy, and I became president of the Natives in Medicine student group. And so finding those two communities and really being grounded around people who had similar upbringings, who had similar experiences, that is kind of how I found the people that supported me in the most trying times while I was at Stanford.
0: You graduated with a BA in human biology with a concentration in public health. Then you earned a master's in epidemiology at Stanford. Now you're heading to medical school there. On paper, it feels like the trajectory of someone who has just always been crystal clear about what they wanted to do. You're shaking your head no. It's
1: like, no, absolutely not.
0: (laughs) So how did you figure it out?
1: I think it was such a hard path for me. I was not pre-med for, like, half of my Stanford career. Which means what then? How did you catch up? Uh, during my junior and senior year, it meant, like, taking 20 units and, like, really buckling down and doing all of my chemistry, oh my all nice. of my physics. God, gotcha. I know. It was crazy. <laughs> but, you know... So what
0: What snapped that you said, wait a second, I want to go back and I want... I I know that I put this dream on the back burner, but this is actually the thing I want to do.
1: It was at one doing that public health internship where I was visiting babies in Boston, in their homes and measuring them. And during those visits, I was like, this is great. But like all of my summer can be summarized by like 18 data points in this huge study. And I was like, that, that doesn't, that's just like, not the impact that I necessarily wanted. And so I was like, okay. And then right after that internship, I went to a program called Community Health in Oaxaca with Dr. Gabe Garcia here, who is an amazing person as well, another person who believed in me. But during the Community Health in Oaxaca program, you visit clinics and you work with Spanish speaking people, the indigenous people of Oaxaca and really work with them to see what health looks like in their communities. And it was in that moment when I, you get to shadow in clinics. And so I saw like some births, I saw some surgeries and I was like, I think this is more like it, um, that this is what I want for myself. And so then I came back and I was like, okay, now it's time to like figure out what I need to do. And again, it was just like that thing of like being the first one in my family to do it. I had no idea like the things that I needed to do to get to medical school.
0: When you left for college, did you think you would ever return to farm work?
1: Yes, I think so. Because I was going home in the summers. Sometimes my mom would say jokingly, like, oh, let's go to the apple harvest. And I think that the first year that I was back, I was like, okay, let's go. And so I went with her. But it was like two weeks. So it was like nothing for me. After spending like 14, 16 weeks in the previous summers, like two weeks was super easy. I would go with my mom to the fields. After I got my master's, though, that was when I was like... When I graduated college, I was like, oh, yeah, probably never going back. Like, I have my degree now and I'll always be able to get a job. Was not the case this summer. So I went back, but...
0: Wait, was not the case this summer because the pandemic came? Yes, that too. (laughs) And what did that mean for the work that you had lined
1: up? I was just finishing my... FB degree. And so I thought, you know, I could probably get a contact tracing job. I can get some like public health job working in our county. And I applied to both and never heard back. But I'm sure like all of those people were overwhelmed with the pandemic. So that's understandable. And then I applied to retail jobs because I also had retail experience, never heard back from them. And thought, in the worst case scenario, I'll go with my mom to the fields. It ended up being the worst case scenario because of the pandemic and I spent Six weeks with my mom in the field. Yeah. Did you notice things coming back with your
0: college degree, with your master's, that you had not noticed previously about the work and the nature of the work?
1: Hmm. Other than like the measures that they were taking to prevent outbreaks in the fields. Not really. I think that my whole college experience, I had been thinking about the fields and like thinking about the kinds of experiences that we we had out there. So whenever I was doing like public health work, I would relate it back to my personal experiences. But I did notice a lot of, one, improvements, I think, and like steps in the right direction for the ranch of like keeping the bathrooms closed or keeping bathrooms cleaner, having more drinking water and like adding additional hand washing stations, because that was something that You know, in the past, we were washing our hands with our drinking water. The ranch was doing a better job, but also, like, not enough to prevent, like, huge outbreaks.
0: So let's talk about the tweet that went viral. In it, you show two huge buckets of blueberries, and you wrote, I'm about to finish up my time in the fields and wanted everyone to know that we, farm workers, are paid $7 for two gallons of blueberries. How much do you pay for your blueberries? Tell me about the decision to write and then to send that tweet.
1: Um, on MedTwitter, which is a community on Twitter that is like predominantly of medical professionals, medical students. During this moment that I chose to tweet this, I, was, I had seen one of my peers also tweeting about their personal experience. And I was like, you know what, I also have like important perspectives. Let me tweet about what's going on in my life. And I really thought, and I thought, and I was like, okay, I don't have much going on in my life other than like working in the field. So let me just tweet about that. And that picture, I had I'd not even thought about taking it. I sent it to my partner because he was like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, in the field. So it wasn't even taken. Like consciously, it was just like a snap that I had sent him. And so I was like, oh, I still have this picture from earlier. Let me just include this, like throw it on there.
0: What did you hope
1: that people would glean from that tweet? I think greater consciousness for, for food. I think it's so easy to eat your food without thinking about all the hands that touched it along the way to your table. And more so that there's still so much injustice behind that system of food from like farm to table that where that injustice falls on communities of color
0: What was interesting to me, though, in part, was the question at the end, which is how much do you pay for your blueberries? Often the focus is on the employer and how much the employer chooses to pay their worker. But you're playing with it a step further and saying, how much do you value this product that you consume What did you want the message to be to someone as they went to the grocery store or the farmer's market and picked up a carton of blueberries?
1: I think that was another thing that I've always thought about is that like when me and my mom go to the grocery store, like if we look at the blueberries, we probably can't afford them with our budget and like, we pick them. So I think when I, I tweeted that, I really wanted to see for people to see the disparity between the amount that they're paying for these blueberries, because it's usually like a pint, and they're usually usually several dollars, we're paid several dollars for a whole gallon of those same blueberries, really making people conscious of the economic injustice that is like you're paying so much as a consumer we're we're working so hard for them and picking so many blueberries for a couple of dollars. So where does that difference come from
0: we've We've sort of talked around it, but we haven't talked. Specifically about the way that your indigenous culture showed up in your home life.
1: Yeah, I think that was another thing is that I felt throughout this whole experience was that that narrative was never really acknowledged. Um,
0: well, because it complicates the narrative,
1: right? <laughs> Right. So growing up, like I said, we used a lot of traditional medicine. Um, I think my attachment to our our pueblo, our village, was always super strong. Like, I remember when we got our first computer, it was one that my, my aunt loaned us. And, like, the first thing my mom asked was, like, oh, show me the pueblo on Google Earth. And that's when I really realized our attachment to home and, like, our desire to be there is so, so, so much bigger than a lot of, like, I think a lot of immigrants also have, like... The, the American dream, the American aspiration, and, like, really to to build their life here in, in America. But, like, our our desire is back home, and, like, how can we go back home and make it better? It's probably a little bit more complicated than that. But, you know, being from an Indigenous background, I think there was a lot of discrimination in the fields as well. A lot of people would use the term, like, as as a slur um, towards us, or, like, don't be, they say matado, which means, like, overworking, like, uh, kill yourself over some dollars, like the Oaxacans. And growing up with those perceptions, like, I think that was when I was growing up, a lot of the time I would just say, oh, I'm just Mexican. Like, never really go into it more than that. But uh, during college was when, when I did the community health and Oaxaca program, when I joined the Native Center. That was when I really started appreciating our village as, like, a pueblo originario, or like an original pueblo. But it was just not something of conversation when, whenever I was doing interviews or whenever I was talking to reporters, like that never came up. It never felt natural to bring it up to them.
0: Why don't you think it came up?
1: I think because it's a lot easier to homogenize the experience of farm workers as just like immigrants um, without realizing that there's Guatemalan farm workers, without realizing that there's Mexican farm workers, that there's farm workers from all sorts of backgrounds, and I think it was just a lot easier to say, like, immigrant farm worker girl versus this Oaxacan indigenous farm worker girl. It, it, it was just easier, I think, for for the discourse.
0: So what about you comes from those cultures?
1: And this is so it's kind of strange to say, uh, but like my humility, I think that whenever I was growing up, like when I got into Stanford, my mom didn't want me to tell anyone. And I was like, well, I have to tell people so that they're happy for me. And she was like, no, you don't have to tell anyone. Like, just be proud of yourself. And that's it. And move on. And so I think humility was something that I learned through my mom. I think, like, my driving, my perseverance. I think people back in our village and our photo have really difficult lives. And, like, my mom tells me that when she was growing up, like, they ate one meal a day, and food was really hard to come by. And so I think that our, our drive and perseverance to like live and survive and and thrive is another thing that I, see, I value so much and that I see day-to-day day now in my life. But also like rich cultural traditions, like our foods. I embroider, which is another like cultural craft that my community practices, that my mom does, that I learned from her. I embroider whenever I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed. And so all of those things contribute to like my perception of myself.
0: As you look ahead at medical school and the career you're pursuing, what are you most looking forward to?
1: I think I'm most looking forward to those interactions when I will come into a patient room and like immediately see like an identification between me and the patient to see that identification when I'm able to speak fluent Spanish with them, when I'm able to like talk to their kids, talk to their parents to not have to use like their daughter as an interpreter or their son as an interpreter. We read a study where it's like parents will ask a lot more questions and like really be more driven to like understand their care when they're speaking the same language as their provider and when they're using an interpreter like the number of questions that they ask per visit decreases so I'm really excited to like be able to open that door for like fully engaging fully understanding like fully empathetic care with my patients and I'm so so looking forward to that. Jelly, thank you so much. Thank (laughs) you.
0: Thanks for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Virginia Lora is our managing producer. Cedric Wilson is our producer. Carolina Rodriguez mixed this episode. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow as a community.